You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Oh, the commotion on Biscayne Boulevard, Miami, Florida, February 15th, 1933. Everyone is lined up to just get a glimpse at the man who's just been elected president in the midst of an economic depression and bank ruin in the country. The president-elect was down in Florida for a fishing trip, and why not add a parade? His yacht was docked at the pier, and at nine o'clock in the morning, he left the yacht and entered an automobile with the top down. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Sitting next to him was the mayor of Miami, R.B. Gardier. A dozen motorcycle policemen rode ahead. Sirens ablazing. Secret servicemen were in the car as well and in a car behind. He approached the bandshell, where a hundred dignitaries were there to meet him. The president lifted himself up to the top of his car seat, so the crowd could hear him. And then he sees Mayor Anton Cernak from Chicago. The mayor controlled a powerful Democratic Party machine in Chicago and had just beaten the giant of that city's politics, Bill Thompson. He was in political damage control. See, he had not supported Roosevelt at the convention. Now Roosevelt was president-elect and about to be in control of a lot of funds that could headed be headed Chicago's way. Better get down there and see Roosevelt. Show him your support. He does. And Roosevelt sees him in the crowd and urges him to come over to the car. Not till after your speech, Mr. President. Roosevelt is handed a microphone in the car, and he makes a short speech. Mr. Mayor, my friends in Miami, I am not a stranger here. A great many years I used to come down here. I haven't been here for seven years, but I can say, but I am happy to be back. I have firmly resolved that this will not be the last time. I have had a wonderful rest and caught a great many fish. Across the crowd, which numbers in the thousands, Lillian Cross, a physician's wife, cannot see. She's short. Like everybody, she wants to get a glimpse of the man that's now going to be president in just a month. There's a bleachers that have been set up, and she goes up there. Ah, a great view, and she can see line of sight to Roosevelt. But it's very shaky on the bleachers. There's so many people, many more than are attended. She's afraid that the bleachers are going to crash, or she's going to be knocked off by all the shaking. And in particular, there's a man behind her, and she's just about to turn around and ask him, can he please calm down and stop shaking? Roosevelt continues his speech. I am not going to attempt to tell you any fishing stories. I will be back here. Many thanks. Mrs. Cross turns to the man next to him and finally voices, Would you please stop shaking the bleachers? When she sees 
Behind her shoulder, the barrel of a gun. She shrieks, and maybe her hands wave up. Roosevelt now sees the mayor of Chicago and the president-elect shakes hands a few moments of conversation. Roosevelt hears something. Two sounds. But he's used to this. He's a pro. These are photographers' flashbulbs. He's not worried by them. But the mayor feels it. He tells an alderman next to him, Jim, I'm hit. And FDR turns and sees the assassin, a tan man, very short, wobbly, holding a 32 caliber pistol. Three more shots ring out. A woman from Newark is shot until the bullet grazes her head. She thought it was flashbulbs too. Then she gets dizzy and loses consciousness, remembering a legionnaire who carries to safety. I felt a rush of something in my head, something warm. I thought it was perspiration. Mrs. Joseph Gill, the wife of the Florida Power Company president, Russell Caldwell of Miami, and New York detective William Sonot were also hit by bullets. The latter, Sonot, took a slug when he turned in front of Roosevelt to look for who was shooting. He was a last-minute addition to Roosevelt's security. Roosevelt's secretary had asked him, he's vacationing in Miami, and they knew him from New York and said, oh, can you get around the car? All survived. Sonot would uh, win the Medal of Honor for his actions that day. Everything is in seconds on those bleachers. Mrs. Lillian, crossed by different accounts to hear you tell it in some cases, wrestles um, Giuseppe Zangara, the assassin, down to the ground. In most accounts, we think another man actually grabbed Zangara's arm, and it could have been that Mrs. Cross made a motion, smacked the arm in her account that she hit his arm. But in any case, Mrs. Cross's screaming alerted everyone in less than a minute. The legionnaires were on them. From Coronet Magazine, 1960, Zangara stood up on a vacated chair and started shooting. A 105-pound Miami doctor's wife sitting in front of him screamed, grabbed his wrist, trying to get the gun away. She managed to divert his aim, but was unable to shake him from the chair. Zangara emptied the revolver in less than 15 seconds. Here's what Cross says. My mind grasped the situation in seconds. I said, my God, he is going to kill the president. I caught him by the arm and tossed it up. So her action sends the bullet a little bit up further to where Cermak is standing instead of FDR. The sound made a terrible noise in my ear. Instantly, a flying wedge of legionnaires buried the gunman and a dozen spectators beneath a pile of humanity. Anton Cermak uh, was mayor of Chicago. He had built up a machine of those who, in you know, a political machine in Chicago, those who were on the outs with the mostly Irish Democratic Party machine, but who weren't Republicans. Germans, Czechoslovakians, Lithuanians, Poles, and African Americans. A firewood salesman and a teamster, he got involved in local politics. The control of Chicago's political machine was Democratic for the most part. It also had a strong Republican Party, too, though. Democratic machine was mostly Irish. And those who were German or Czechoslovakian or Lithuanian or Polish either had to go Republican or not be part of a party usually that was controlling things. And he built up a machine of the people who were on the outs from the Democratic Party but weren't Republicans. And in 1931, he beats Mayor Bill Thompson, Big Bill Thompson, who had controlled the city through the 20s. From Coronet Magazine, 1960, 
The curtain of the drama went up when Miami headlines announced that President-elect Roosevelt had ended his 11-day fishing trip aboard Vincent Astor's yacht and would make a brief speech in Miami before leaving by train for Washington to prepare for his inauguration on March 4th. In a cheap rooming house in downtown Miami, Giuseppe Zangara, a pint-sized Italian immigrant, lay on the sway-backed iron bed and laboriously read the newspaper, which carried a map of FDR's route. Leaving the rooming house, he went to a pawn shop, where he purchased an $8 mail-order revolver and 10 cartridges. Then he hurried towards Bayfront Park. According to Coronet Magazine's account, it's actually Mayor Cernak that causes Roosevelt's car to be there a little longer than planned. The president-elect's speech was brief. When he finished, the celebrities broke from the stage and started towards the car. George Broadnox, Secret Service agent in charge of security arrangements, waved to the driver of the auto to get going. Roosevelt stayed the order and called him over. The Chicago mayor stepped on the car's running board and shook the president-elect's hand. They chatted for a few moments. When Mayor Cermak dies of his wounds later, Zangara is put in Old Sparky, Florida's electric chair. Here's Coronet Magazine. The sentence was carried out on March 20th, 1933 at the state prison. Zangara preceded the guards into the execution chamber. He even ran over to the chaplain and handed him a sheaf of papers, his autobiography. As the guards approached him, Zangara said, Keep hands off. I am not afraid to sit in the chair. I do it myself. Push the button, push the button were his last words. He was upset that there was no newsreels at the event. The only reason Zangara could give for his act, then or afterwards, was that he hated capitalists, and he hated kings, and he suffered almost continuously from stomach pains. Doctors later said these pains were probably emotional in origin. About ten years earlier, he had resolved to assassinate King Victor Emmanuel of Italy, but decided not to because of dense crowds. He had intended to go north and shoot President Hoover, but then he read of FDR's visit. That was his story. Now, there's going to be conspiracy theories that are going to come out afterwards that this was a a Chicago gangland hit, and that actually Mayor Cermak was the target and not FDR. And this is something I've heard in the past, too. But the more I read about this story, it seems very unlikely. First of all, we're talking about shots that were fired that Zangara obviously did not aim at because his hand was being pulled. Um, Also, the mayor was on the bandstand and not supposed to be part of the car, but the shots were aimed at the car. And the fact that Zangara happened to be there, a lack of connection between Zangara and really Chicago at all, this really, you know, seems strange. And it's easy to say that everything is like a mob hit, right? This story of Lillian Cross got a lot of press. Here's the United Press, UP. Because of the courage of a small woman who pressed her, who pitted her strength against a crazed gunman, probably saved President-elect Franklin Roosevelt. She seized the pistol arm of Giuseppe Zangara and matched her body against his. But the reality is there was another man involved um, in the story um, who also grabbed the gunman's hand. But this compelling story of this physician's wife was too good not to press with. And so Cross gets a lot of press for this and gets a congratulatory note from the White House after the trip. The Chicago Tribune prints two stories. One is that the mayor of Chicago and his last words at the hospital to Franklin Roosevelt, Roosevelt accompanies, Roosevelt stops his car, 
because the Secret Service agents want to take off. Roosevelt says, no, the man's being apprehended. He didn't hit me. Let's stop, get the mayor of Chicago, bring them to the hospital. And they do, and the president's car rides about 20 blocks to the nearest hospital. The mayor of Chicago is taken there. And according to a Chicago Tribune story, the mayor says, I'm glad it was me instead of you. Now, either the mayor of Chicago is a brilliant politician, even in his last moments, trying to woo the new president-elect to help his city, or, as we think is more likely, the Chicago Tribune simply made this quote up. The Chicago Tribune was also fond of pointing out that in the letter that Franklin Roosevelt writes to Lillian Cross, that the White House writes, that they keep saying your quick action averted a tragedy. As if the killing of the mayor of Chicago was not in itself a tragedy, but we know what he meant, that it avoided, um, you know, um, you know, Zangara's bullet is something to think about. Perhaps the actions of Cross and the other people who were able to disrupt the gunman, because if President-elect Roosevelt is killed, John Nance Garner becomes president. He's a Democrat. He's not going to be, we believe, as aggressive on the New Deal. You, know, you might get some legislation out of him, but he's not going to be the same type of president as Franklin Roosevelt. History would be quite different. Well, you look at the type of weapon, you look at the fact that actually, you know, in the story of McKinley, say, there's not that great Secret Service protection here, Roosevelt actually did have, was very concerned with his own security. So it's not like, and that's part of it too, because we believe that the New York police detective took a bullet that might have hit Roosevelt. But the Chicago Tribune was published by Robert McCormick, called the Colonel because he had been a colonel in the Illinois Guard and served in World War I. There was no love lost between the Chicago Tribune and Franklin Roosevelt. Mr. Roosevelt is a communist, McCormick editorialized in an opinion he never saw any reason to qualify. He didn't like Roosevelt in 32. He opposed the New Deal. In 1936, as Roosevelt runs for re-election, McCormick runs the tribute headline that says, Only 97 days left to save your country. And not only did he put it in the headline of the Chicago Tribune, but switchboard operators would repeat the appropriate countdown as election day approached. So 95 days to save your country. Chicago Tribune, five days to save your country. Here's how Ron Grossman, a tribute staff reporter, described McCormick. One of the most colorful, which is to say glorious, idiosyncratic figures in American journalism. His madcap genius helped to shape today's media landscape. McCormick was innovative and realized that a newspaper station had to get involved in radio early. And his broadcast, personal broadcast, over WGN, the pioneering radio station he owned, which standed for, which stood for the Tribune's slogan, World's Greatest Newspaper, WGN. Long after the president's death in 1945, McCormick kept on thundering across the airwaves against him. And he insisted the nation's moral fiber had been undermined by the New Deal. For a period in 1935, McCormick protested Rhode Island's Democratic judiciary by taking the star for Rhode Island off the flag outside the Tribune building. The 13th star was removed. He only added it back after he was advised that the alteration of the American flag was unlawful. 
He published the Victory Program, a military plan that FDR had ordered in the summer of 1941 to prepare the United States for entry into World War II. It was leaked to him by U.S. Senator Burton Wheeler, who was an isolationist. And it was published December 4th, 1941, three days before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. It was only because of the seriousness of that event and the domination of that event in the news that the story about this leak didn't get more press. From the Durangle Herald, FDR in the White House read the Tribune every day. His friends tried to talk him out of it, but he evidently wanted to know the worst about himself, one said. When he ran for a fourth term on a ticket with Missouri Senator Harry Truman, his chief aide Harry Hopkins forecasting a win, cabled to a member of Winston Churchill's cabinet, that if Hopkins were wrong, I will underwrite the British national debt and subscribe to the Chicago Tribune. McCormick was against a lot of things. Wall Street, Easterners, Democrats, New Deal, Fair Deal, Liberal Republicans, the League of Nations, the World Court, the United Nations, British imperialism, socialism. He was against both Cermak and Bill Thompson, Republican and Democrat. McCormick had soured on Herbert Hoover early. Reading an advanced copy of Hoover's inaugural address, the publisher sent a telegram to his Washington bureau. This man will not do. The Great Depression of 1929 surprised Herbert Hoover, the major financial wizards and capitalists, but apparently not Robert McCormick. All during Hoover's tenure of office, he made speeches denouncing the role of government in the affairs of people. He developed a theory of causation for the Depression. It was traced to the extravagance of governmental expenditures since the war. A cut in taxes would bring a return to prosperity. He's also an isolationist. The miserable failure of that great departure from the ancient American principle of isolationism starkly warned against further dalliance with internationalist policies, McCormick wrote. It wasn't just McCormick's Tribune, though he was kind of the leader, Joseph Patterson's Daily News, and Sissy Patterson's Washington Times Herald. Two days after Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt said, To all newspapers and radio stations, all those who reach the eyes and ears of the American people, I say this. You have a most grave responsibility to the nation, now and for the duration of this war. If you feel that your government is not disclosing enough of the truth, you have every right to say, but in the absence of all the facts, as revealed by official sources, you have no right, in the ethics of patriotism, to deal out unconfirmed reports in such a way as to make people believe they are gospel truth. Six months after Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt convinced that these papers were just printing pro-German and fascist sentiment, ordered the Justice Department to analyze the content of their editorials and news articles, to find if there was any propaganda. The Justice Department did not find this. The head of the FBI and the Office of Facts and Figures subjected publishers to microscopic investigation for any Nazi connections they might have, but found none, and had to abandon the efforts. McCormick called Truman a nincompoop on his editorial page, anticipated sound defeat, and the Tribune was in the middle of a printer's strike, and this is why he has to come out with the issue early and calls the election for Dewey, resulting in the first edition of 150,000 copies with the most famous headline in paper's history, Dewey Defeats Truman. This is what the New York Times says, he considered himself an aristocrat in his imposing structure, six feet four inches tall, the muscular body weighing over 200 pounds. His erect soldierly bearing and his reserved manner and distinguished appearance made it easy 
for him to play that role of aristocrat. Yet he despised the idle rich and had no use for parasites, dilettantes, or mere pleasure seekers. He often put in seven long days a week at his job, even when elderly, keeping fit through polo and later horseback riding. He could still get into the war uniform of his 30s when he was in his 70s. McCormick's view, which he expressed going into the early 1950s, was that Europe was decadent and the country, especially middle America, was great, but communists and bureaucrats were out to undermine it. In 1952 WGN broadcast, he made a pox on your both houses attack on Dwight Eisenhower and Adlai Stevenson, the Republican and the Democrat. In the colonel's eyes, Eisenhower's supporters were slippery East Coast elites. They mean for him to support socialism in Europe as a prelude for bringing it here, he thundered. Governor Stevenson is the nominee of the CIO, for which the present Democratic Party is merely a false face. Well, I mean, I think obviously when we think about presidents and press and news sources and the conflicts that arise and it's sometimes seen as like the Democrats have had the press locked up and I don't think that's really true. I think in the newspaper era, there was quite a bit because newspapers tended to be owned by big businessmen in various cities and towns, tended to be more conservative than the people that lived in them. And you had in the, the old L.A. Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Chicago Tribune, and many other smaller newspapers throughout the country, more favorable coverage of Republicans. Now, in the South, where that area of the country was locked up for Democrats for so many years. Sure, you'd have more Democratic-supporting newspapers. Yet it's easy to paint Robert McCormick as some kind of evil force, uh, particularly if you're a fan of Roosevelt and his politics. One thing to say about McCormick is, and the Chicago Tribune, is a lot of the First Amendment litigation that set precedent in the country, uh, he funds it. Uh, one of the great suits they had is a battle with Henry Ford. At one point, the, the Tribune is eager for some intervention in the Mexico situation during Wilson's term. Henry Ford's against it. They call Henry Ford an anarchist in the Tribune. And in fact, it's an editorial page probably written by McCormick. Ford sues. Case comes to trial. The Tribune lawyers made a fool of, of Ford on the witness stand. The automotive genius was no scholar. The jury only awarded six cents, the minimum amount, since the jury did not feel that he had been financially injured. So in spite of the fact that they lost the case, it was an important precedent for First Amendment cases. Then the city of Chicago, Bill Thompson, sues for $1 million and loses. Sues again, saying that the newspaper had ruined Chicago's credit. The Tribune wins. He was instrumental in bringing, uh, as the head of the committee on a free press for the American newspaper publishers, the case of Nearverse, Minnesota, in which there was a gag law enacted by Minnesota against freedom of the press. It allowed prior restraint against publications. Deemed undesirable, is what McCormick says, the newspaper is an institution developed by modern civilization to present the news of the day, to foster commerce and industry, to inform and lead public opinion, and to furnish that check upon the government, the no constitution, has been able to provide.
I never thought about what I looked like. I didn't know what a mirror was. I didn't know there was such a thing as electricity or that water could come into the house through a pipe. The actor Sidney Poitier moved from Nassau, the Bahamas, to Miami in the 1940s. The climate, he said, was like Nassau, where he's from, but culture was different. They looked down on those with dark skin. Nothing had prepared me to surrender my pride and self-regard sufficiently to accept those humiliations. I love that line. Nothing had prepared me to surrender my pride and self-regard to accept these humiliations. That means I'm not taking any BS, just in case it's not clear. Sidney Poitier was a, got a job as a delivery person in Miami, and he goes to deliver to one store, and he tells the woman at the counter, here is your package. And she says, get to the back where you belong. But I'm here, he says. Here's the package. He wants to make the delivery and get on. The door is slammed in his face. He leaves the package on the front door instead of going to the back. A couple of nights later, when I came home, my brother's house was dark, and the family was lying on the floor, huddled together. I realized that the clan had been looking for me. Everyone was terrified fearful, but I wasn't. I was headstrong, maybe too much. I knew I came from a good mother and a good father, and I knew I was a good person, and I wouldn't be intimidated. That I would take on for the rest of my life in that trait. In the theater, I would always want to be better. I didn't just want to be Marlon Brando. I wanted to be better than Marlon Brando. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. That trait took me to the damnedest places. But he did decide to get out of Miami. He tried Atlanta. There was no room in any of these towns for me to be me. So I took a bus from New York. Now, most people at Nassau had never been to America, didn't know what it's like. But you hear stories, myths, especially about Harlem, everything going on there, the Harlem Renaissance, the music, the literature, the poetry. But even this didn't prepare me. 
I get to New York, and my first conversation was with a well-dressed black man who I asked how to get to Harlem. He pointed me to steps that went down. I thought, this is odd. Nothing had prepared me for what I saw. An underground railroad with trains moving at breakneck speed, cars full of people. That's how we got to Harlem. My first two years, call it my time of ashes, my time between arriving in New York and starting to get a job at the American Negro Theater. Negro Theater. It was my time in ashes. In Africa, men can smear their faces in ashes for their initiation into manhood. From the autobiography of Sidney Poitier. My home in Sidney Poitier did an interview in 2000 for The Observer, and he said about his career, I had to think twice or three times about every step I took. I was in a culture that denied me my very existence. I had no forces behind me. Blacks were so new in Hollywood. There was almost no frame of reference for us except as stereotypical, one-dimensional characters. I had in mind what was expected of me and what I expected of myself. And he looked for complex roles. He had to turn down roles that were more stereotypical. It was a choice, a clear choice, he said, in 1967, the New York Times. If the fabric of society were different, I would scream to high heaven to play villains and to deal with all kinds of different images of African-American life that would be more dimensional. But at this stage of the game, I wanted to play saints. And quite literally, he plays a priest, plays other characters that are great heroes. Where he really breaks out is the Defiant Ones. In 1958, he gets his first nomination, Oscar nomination for Best Actor. So, eleven stitches and a little cat. It's the story of two prisoners on the run. One is white, one is black. The two missing men, Noah Cullen and John Joker Jackson. John Joker Jackson is played by Tony Curtis. What's eating you? They hate each other. The problem is they're shackled together because they're part of a chain gang. And they weren't supposed to be, but... The warden's got a sense of humor. Long gone, what I mean. They escape when a truck loaded with prisoners crashes. And of course, a sheriff's posse and many bloodhounds are dispatched the next morning to find them. What's you? Despite not liking each other, they're forced to cooperate as they're chained together. And gradually they do begin to respect each other. And I don't want to give the whole story away, but the, they have to go through terrible terrain, weather. People are not cooperative. They are lucky to find a few people to help them along the way and face a situation where the character played by Tony Curtis is forced to save himself or save his friend, his new friend. Variety magazine praised the Defiant Ones as saying, the theme of the Defiant Ones is that what keeps men apart is their lack of knowledge of one another. With that knowledge comes respect. And with respect, comradeship, and even love. Uh, go ahead, Mr. President. This is Houston out. Hello, Neil and Buzz. 
I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made from the White House. I just can't tell you how proud we all are of what you have done. For every American, this has to be the proudest day of our lives. And for people all over the world, I am sure that they too join with Americans in recognizing what an immense feat this is. Because of what you have done, the heavens have become a part of man's world. And as you talk to us from the sea of tranquility, it inspires us to redouble our efforts to bring peace and tranquility to earth. For one priceless moment in the whole history of man, all the people on this earth are truly one. One in their pride in what you have done and one in our prayers that you will return safely to Earth. Thank you, Mr. President. It's a great honor and privilege for us to be here representing not only the United States, but and of peace of all nations, and with interest and a curiosity, and, and with a vision for the future. Uh, honor for us to be able to participate here today. And thank you very much, and I look forward, all of us look forward to seeing you on the Hornet on Thursday. So, one of the things I talk about in the Space versus Inflation podcast is what would have happened, right? Let's say Nixon and Congress, to be fair, did not cut space funding and kept space funding at Mercury, Gemini, Apollo levels that President Kennedy and, to some extent, Lyndon Johnson had. It's really Lyndon Johnson that makes the first cut. But uh, Nixon really puts the knife in human missions to the moon. And um, orbiters, space stations, multiple, not just the Skylab, which survived Nixon's cuts, a piloted Venus flyby, these were things that NASA had on their radar. And also, they very much wanted lunar bases. So there would be a base on the moon that we would be going to on a regular basis. And they felt that NASA's J program, so the 15, Apollo 15, Apollo 16, Apollo 17 are the J program, a little more advanced. We're not just discovering things. We're going there and having experiments. But they were pretty geology heavy. And um, 19 and 20 would have set up more um, command and service modules on the, on the moon, really setting up uh, future projects. And it's cut down, you know, it being shut off really is what ended future human exploration, at least by Americans, on the, on the moon. Um, since the Apollo missions, there have been things that we've figured out that weren't known at that time. Like they have found molecules of water, very small trace amount in some of the, these glass-like elements that on Apollo 17, the astronauts discovered when they were out in their lunar vehicle, uh, they found these like glass beads that came from a volcano, which means it comes from the core of the moon that was spit out billions of years ago. And uh, in there they found Water. It wasn't analyzed until and discovered that that was water until 2008.
So, yeah, the Apollo 20 mission was to go to Tycho Crater. Now, Tycho Crater is one of the most prominent craters in the moon. It's visible because it appears like a bright spot in the southern highland. It's one of thousands of craters at the same side, but it's this white spot. So it's always been particularly interesting to those of us on Earth, right? It's one of the few craters that you can see without a telescope. So that was the plan to land there. The other thing about Tycho and the reason that it's bright is because of its relative youth. Yeah, this crater is only 108 million years old. Now, that may not seem that bad, but when you compare it to the average crater is 3.9 billion years old. So Tycho's really new. And this is um, what NASA says, because it's so recent in forming, these beautiful rays of material ejected during the impact event are still visible as bright streaks. So all craters start out looking like that after they form, but the rays gradually fade away as they sit on the surface, exposed to the space environment, which over time darkens them until they fade into the background. What can I say? This is not my history can beat up your astronomy. I don't know this stuff. I find it all very fascinating. So they were to go to Tycho and actually explore this spot, and Apollo 18, 19, and 20 were canceled. The other thing that wasn't going to happen even by Apollo 20, but they were setting up for it with these lunar bases, and it wasn't clear how many trips to the moon we were going to have over the course of the 70s. So NASA had plants just on paper to continue to the next logical extension to build a permanent or at least a semi permanent base in the moon, something that could be used by the net, next set of af astronauts going there. So they start doing things in Apollo 12, Apollo 14, simple excursions on the moon's surface with astronauts leaving the lunar lander. But the second step from 15 to 17 was to start using the extended lunar module to stay longer on the moon. And then, of course, the lunar rover as a way to explore farther from the landing site. And that they achieved. In 19 and 20, they would have attempted a 28-day lunar orbital survey mission, high-resolution imagery, to really get a sense of the ground on the moon. Part of the 28-day mission would be a space medicine, how being outside of Earth's magnetic field affects the human body. Um, the fourth step, again, that never was taken, would have been sending down a lunar shelter with food, supplies, and equipment that astronauts wouldn't have it, rather than just the lunar module. This way, they didn't have to send all of this down with the mission with the astronauts. They could start sending, you know, in effect, like parachuting equipment down that the astronauts could use, all theoretical. Um, they planned on paper to have a shelter long enough for a 14-Earth-day-long mission. Now, because Apollo 13 crashed the upper stage of Saturn V to create artificial earthquakes for seismometers to, that they had left on the previous missions to record, they knew that they could do a soft landing. Now, that was a crash landing. They knew they could at least hit the lunar surface without a human pilot. Obviously, the whole reason of that episode about space and inflation is to show you, look, what we missed and because of rising prices, it's not just that things cost too much. And maybe that we were backing off the commitment, but 
to make that point again, to make it clear is that the value you were getting for each buck of taxpayer money was going down, which made the political will that much harder. And the attack came from both left and right. But you do see where where we left off because of inflation and budget cuts. And one of these places is these lunar bases, all theoretical. But Rockwell Company, North American Rockwell in 1971, does do a lunar base synthesis study. One of the real disappointments when they first returning some of the lunar rocks to Earth is that they are anhydrous. They are not containing any water, which is going to make it real difficult to build a moon base out of this material. They're going to have to bring the liquid. So it was going to have to be a base where the materials were sent and that much was clear. But you at least have theoretical uh, plans for lunar bases. And it's reasonable to assume that with the same level of spending that had occurred in the 60s applied to each year of the 70s going into the 80s, that something like that could have been feasible. What's You're hearing a lot more about space, and I think it's important to see that the exact same thing that happened in the 50s and 60s, even though there's no Sputnik moment, is happening now, and that competition on Earth is driving the space program. And the most obvious is China and Russia. Uh, Mark Hilburn, lecturer at Defense Studies at King's College London, says, you know, astropolitics follows terrapolitics. And it's absolutely true. We saw that in the 50s and 60s, and you see it today. Now, 72 countries have space programs. But, you know, we focus a lot on China, and China has a Mars probe. China has a moon probe that was able to travel nearly a mile on the moon's surface. They launched one in 2008 and one in 2018. They are getting there. It's not clear if they're going to get a person on the moon, but maybe by the time you get to 2030 or something, you know, we're we're talking about that's possible. And this has really inspired the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations to put forward more funding for a space program and to try to get us back on the moon and have a moon base possible mission to Mars from that moon base. Um, and, you know, so you see that we, Hey, we could have had it, you know, possibly, but when, you know, I don't, I think one thing that will surprise people is some of the countries that are involved in space, like Brazil, Canada, and even Luxembourg. So Luxembourg, the grand duchy of Luxembourg is actually, of Luxembourg is actually one of the pioneers. I mean, it's a country with a very strong economy and able to spend on this sort of thing. And in development in, say, space communications, uh, the development of a briefcase-sized lunar probe that went up on a Chinese rocket. Here's from Luxembourg's space agency site. Since the 80s, Luxembourg has created satellite telecoms infrastructure connecting first Europe, then the world. Luxembourg's space companies deliver TV and radio broadcasts, communications and data traffic around the world. It is home to one of the largest satellite firms in the world, SESSA established in 1985 and operates dozens of satellites. Luxembourg has launched 53 objects in space, making it like number in the top five of the countries that have sent in terms of number of objects spent in, sent into space. Another powerhouse in space of sorts is Canada, and we don't really think about it, but the Canadian Space Agency was one of the first countries in the world to launch a satellite into space became third after the U.S. and USSR to send a satellite in. 
It's a regular contributor to the International Space Station. And one of the things Canada does is the robotic arm, the Canada Arm 2, that has dozens of vehicles that allows them to dock on the orbiting body. 17 astronauts who are Canadian have been in space, and Canada has sent 82 objects into space. Okay, so, you know, once you get near that space station, the thing that's going to bring you in most effectively, even a, a, an individual astronaut at times, is that Canada arm. I think you're seeing that there's a lot of competition for space. It's the Wild West right now in terms of law and rules. And the U.S. should remain in the game, mostly because of our private enterprise. Even though China is coming fast and furious, at least in accounts I've read, you know, like any government agency, they're not as nimble as some of the private companies and what they can develop. So uh, let's see what happens. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I've been wanting to take a look at John Boehner's book, and and so I did um, uh, John Boehner's On the House. And there's not too much in there, but there's a couple of things. He There's a lot of opinions in his book. I think it's an interesting read. Ethanol doesn't work. He says it's so stupid, but it keeps... People want to run for president, so we keep putting it forward. Of course, it's easy for a guy from Ohio to say that. Um, but he says, you know, people don't notice the sugar lobby is just as bad. It's been a lobby for 140 years. It is so strong, he said. Um, it is protectionist, and he declares it to be socialist, the idea that we can't get sugar from other parts of the world at a cheaper price. But the sugar lobby is one of the strongest and most invisible on Congress. One time, a lobbyist came to visit him. He made a comment about sugar raping the taxpayers. I mean, it's just a private comment in his office to this lobbyist. Was, My phone did not stop ringing for five weeks. All of these people in my district, which doesn't really have sugar in, you know, in Ohio, all of a sudden they found they had some connection. Like, we make boxes 
you know, I, it must have been a code red put out after my comments to the sugar lobbyists. Look, he says, in Washington, the status quo isn't unbeatable, but it can't stand people who come to Washington and think they're really just going to change everything overnight. It's incredibly difficult to take on powerful um, ingrained interests in 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 dc you're not going to win overnight because it doesn't shouldn't stop us from trying but uh you can't do everything you know that's just a few things i pulled out of his book would like to read it more he seemed to like to curse at people he once called steve king a quote a-hole you know of course i'm shortening it and then when steve king asked why he said because you are you know he would say, Boehner would say that he was much more frank as Speaker of the House than people were used to. He had to work with Eric Cantor, who was from the South, and, uh, you know, uh, him, his staff and their staff didn't always get along, but they tried to work things out. He just can't stand when people say the deep state. It's just an excuse for all the problems that people have. It's weird. He also told, you know, he's bipartisan about his cussing. He told Harry Reid to go F himself after Reid made a speech in which he accused Boehner of having a dictatorship in the House. And what really set Boehner off is that he felt that Harry Reid was trying to stoke up his most extreme members to rebel against him instead of trying to get governing done. Go F himself, he tells him. Stop ginning up my members. Boehner's a fan of red wine. He particularly likes Merlot, likes the restaurant Trattoria Alberto in Washington, D.C., near Capitol Hill, he says. And when he's there, he gets the Rufino Reserva Ducolciante. Okay. He's originally from a German family, Boehner, right? And he has this veal dish that he really likes, which is a veal cutlet cooked with fried eggs on top and anchovies. And even though it's an Italian restaurant, they made it for him. And they call it the Veal a la Boehner. And he says, it's not on the menu anymore, but if you go there, they'll probably make it for you. Game of football, the rough game of football, rugby, the variant of football, which comes from a school in England, rugby has a really long history, this type of game. It might have been called kicking the bladder, the leather ball, or ki- I love this one, kicking the Dane's head. Let's go around and kick the Dane's head. You might have said that in the 12th to 13th century. And now is the game of, of football that we know. Steak tartar. The tartars were known, uh, horsemen were known for eating raw meat or sometimes leaving meat under the saddle that they rode on and to cook it in that heat. Um, we don't know that they actually ate steak tartare as we eat it, but it, it, the steak tartare dish comes from Germany originally, and they were naming it after these horsemen in any case. At least according to the facts on file, word and phrase origins dictionary. Video, Latin for I see. Ozarks, the French as they traveled through what is now the American Midwest and South, like to shorten uh, tribal names of India. So when they referred to the land that the Arkansas Indians territory was, they might say Ox Arks, Ox Arks, which would mean 
up into the Arkansas Indians' territory, Oxarks, Oxarks, which became Ozarks. It's also possible that it's Oxars, which is with bows, referring to people with bows. So that's where that, when you ever look at that name, Ozarks, and it has kind of Oz in it, and it seems a little strange, right? That's where the name comes from. It's French origin. Oxygen, same thing. Oxygen. Um, Antoine Lavoisier, one of the people who Jefferson would have met during his time as the American ambassador, one of the people Franklin would have met, very supportive of the case of the American Revolution in front of the French king. He was unfortunately guillotined during the French Revolution. But he discovers oxygen, although he wrongly names it, because the word oxygen means acid-producing, because he thought oxygen was an acid, which it is not. Sophomore, Maverick, a Texas lawyer and not a very good rancher, didn't brand his cattles properly. And when his business was sold, any cattles out there that were unmarked and not belonging to other ranches, they just said, oh, those are Mavericks, we think. The other possibility is that Sam Maverick um, was sitting on the land that's now Boston when Puritans arrived to colonize that area. And he was an independent settler, not connected to the other colonies, and they had to get him to move, Sam Maverick. So those are the two possibilities. At least, again, according to the facts on file, word origins dictionary. What you realize reading one of these things is many of these explanations are vague or controversial. Jumbo was the name of an elephant in the Barnum Circus in 1881. It comes from an African word meaning chief. Jumbo. Now you see it just meaning anything big. Jumbo size. A jargon is meaningless chatter or a tweeting sound in medieval French. Jargon. Xerox comes from zero, Greek for dry, and originally the product was the Xerograph. And the company that named this popular product was Xerox. Keats, Ode to Autumn. Season of mist and mellow fruitfulness. Close bosom friend of the maturing sun conspires with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel to set budding more. And still more, later flowers for the bees, until they that think warm days will never cease. For summer has overbrimmed their clammy cells. <laughs> 